Welcome to the Field Talk podcast from the Linder Farm Network, the voice of Minnesota agriculture. Earlier this year, the Environmental Protection Agency unveiled its proposed Endangered Species Act herbicide strategy framework. More than 200 agricultural groups have come out in opposition to the proposal, which could dramatically impact the availability of farm herbicides. Kyle Kunkler, American Soybean Association Director of Government Affairs, joins this Field Talk podcast to explain why so many in agriculture are opposed to the EPA proposal. So the herbicide strategy is one part of a multi-pronged strategy that EPA is taking to bring its pesticide program into compliance with the Endangered Species Act. Um, it's, uh, from our perspective, a very problematic proposal, um, but it's certainly not the only one out there. EPA has done uh, similar pilots or strategies on um, particularly vulnerable species. They've done one on rodenticides today, and they're anticipating to do ones on fungicides and herb, uh, sorry, fungicides and, um, and insecticides here in the months to come as well. But uh, herbicide strategy is the proposal that we just had a comment period close on, and uh, it, it deals specifically with how does EPA reduce the risks of runoff or spray drift exposures from herbicides uh, to endangered and threatened species in their habitats. So I know ASA was uh, one of the leading groups with uh, you know, over 200 others that uh, provided a, a letter and, and some response to uh, that proposal, I guess. Why are are you guys and, and other groups uh, opposed to what the uh, EPA has put out? Well, we're it, it's, it's a tricky issue because on one hand, we want EPA to be compliant with the Endangered Species Act, and we truly need them to be, in fact, because... In recent years, due to all of the lawsuits that have been filed against EPA for non-compliance with, with ESA, we've seen a number of pesticide registrations get struck down by federal courts. So it's important that they're compliant, and we agree with them that they need to be, but what's been proposed is definitely not the way to get them into compliance. Obviously, devil is in the details. And uh, EPA is... Um, they face a very challenging task. Um, you know, Endangered Species Act was designed to, you know, it was, it was first passed back in 1973. And it was designed, think about if you're building like a bridge over a creek and there's an endangered turtle in the creek, how do you protect that turtle from, from the bridge? And, you know, maybe the answer is, is you can move that bridge downstream half a mile and protect the, the turtles. But it's it's entirely different when you're talking about um, a pesticide registration that's used on dozens of crops across hundreds of millions of acres that intersects with nearly all 1,600 endangered species. And EPA doesn't have to do that for just one pesticide, but hundreds of pesticides that they have to review um, to say nothing all to, of the new active ingredients that they're reviewing as well. It's a gargantuan task. And so what EPA is proposing in the herbicide strategy and some of these other these other um, pilots and strategies that they're proposing is, well, what if we group things together and do them all at once? Okay, on its face, that might sound reasonable. But what we've seen is EPA is what they're proposing is putting in place a bunch of upfront cookie cutter restrictions um, to ensure that the registrations won't pose a risk to species of their habitats. But unfortunately, EPA is not um, looking at, you know, doing a deep dive into well, what is the risk, potential risk of these chemicals to the species of their habitats. They're just assuming a baseline level of risk and throwing in place a bunch of very strict, overly conservative 
restrictions on pesticide use um, without, you know, really delving into, well, what is the, you know, what is the actual risk to species and what's the impact going to be on farmers who are going to have to adopt these restrictions? Um, the herbicide strategy specifically is would, um, again, I mentioned it targets erosion or so erosion and runoff and spray drift risks. And for herbicide strategy, you have to get a number of what they're calling points. And it's a very complex formula to try to figure out how many points you need to get. Depends on what you're farming, what herbicides you're using, where you're at, what your proximity to certain species are at. Um, it's it's a it's a task in and of itself to try to figure out what your compliance obligations are. And you know, we, we honestly think it's probably better suited for a math textbook than a pesticide label. Um, but what we're assuming is most folks are probably going to need between six to nine points. And what does that mean? You can get, say, one point for cover crops, you can get a point or two for no-till. And very quickly, it gets incredibly harder, much harder to, um, you know, adopt these types of practices that are going to get you to six or nine points. You could need to put in place riparian buffers, contour terracing, vegetative filter strips, you know, and maybe get a point or two here and there for each of these different practices. All in all, for an operation that runs, a, you know, that, that farms on thousands of acres, you could be looking at millions of dollars in additional compliance costs through conservation and having to take significant tracts of land out of production just to meet these, you know, these runoff requirements. There's also spray drift risk requirements. Uh, you know, to, in, in what they're looking at primarily is putting in place downwind spray drift buffers that could be up to 500 feet for aerial applications and up to 200 feet for, for ground applications. Um, it's also very complex because you can reduce those, the size of those buffers by a variety of different ways. It depends on the humidity. It depends on the temperature. It depends on, uh, droplet size, uh, you know, how, how high your, uh, your boom height, um, you know, whether you're using hooded sprayers or put in place a tree windbreak, um, there are ways you could reduce those, those buffer sizes, but all in all, you're looking at, again, leaving significant, um, areas of crop untreated, which not only will, will prevent farmers from being able to protect their crop, could also provide as refuges for weeds or herbicide resistant re resistant weeds and allow for those, um, you know, those weed pests to uh, reinvest fields much more, much more quickly. There are quite a few different areas that are problematic from a, a grower's perspective that uh, uh, would create some some major challenges and some major headaches uh, for a producer to be able to, to navigate this strategy. I, that's hitting the nail on the head. Um, and it's unfortunate, too, because we think that there's better ways that EPA could go about doing this. Um, I mentioned these are very overly conservative, upfront cookie cutter restrictions that EPA is looking to put in place. And we don't think that that's the best answer. And, and we think that they, in, in many cases, could be unnecessary to protect species as well. So you're making farmers jump through these hoops uh, and, and adopt all of these very costly, uh, you know, compliance restrictions without necessarily even having a protective, a meaningful protective effect on species. EPA, under the Endangered Species Act, has an obligation to use, quote unquote, the best available science. Like that's what the law requires. And there's a number of instances where we see where EPA is not even doing that when trying to figure out what the risks to species are. So, for example, EPA looks at a pesticide and looks and says, well, what is the maximum amount that a farmer could use? And that's what we're going to assume every farmer out there is doing. So take, take Roundup, take glyphosate, for example. That assumes that farmers are using six, soybean farmers are using six pounds per acre 
of glyphosate per year when there's good data and science that shows farmers are actually using closer to one to 1.5 pounds. So you're assuming four times the amount of, of, of herbicide that's being used there than what actually is being used. EPA also assumes that there is currently zero conservation taking place. Um, it's interesting that cover crop crops and no-till are the solution to protect the species, but EPA doesn't even go out and figure out how much of that is actually already taking place. Um, and we know it's being used on, you know, no-till, for example, or reduced tillage practices are being used on, you know, nearly 75% of soybean acres across the country. Like, you think that EPA would want to take that into account and figure out what type of protective effect is that already having on species? But they're operating from the assumption zero. Zero acres are currently under conservation. And when you stack, start stacking all of these conservative assumptions on top of each other, that you know farmers are out there spraying the maximum amount possible. There's zero conservation taking place. They're feeding that into these very conservative spray drift and water concentration models. Like it's no wonder that EPA finds that every species under the sun is being impacted and needs to be protected for. What we've seen in a couple instances, like for Enlist, for example, and then there's another insecticide, Malathion, that have already gone through the full process. Um, when, when EPA and it's, it's ultimately Fish and Wildlife Service are the species experts at the end of the day. When they sit down and look at all of the data um, holistically, what they find is there aren't that many species actually out there actually being impacted the way that these the herbicide strategy and other proposals assume. And for those species that still truly may be at, re at risk, there are some good common sense solutions out there that can allow the species to be protected while allowing for the coexistence of agricultural uses of pesticides. Unfortunately, EPA is just, um, they're currently seeking to cut corners and that's gonna harm a lot of farmers. And you mentioned too the use of the cover crops and no-till, which ironically would be also impacted uh, in their ability to use the herbicides that uh, help replace the need for trips across the field too from this strategy. That is uh, spot on, and one of the most ironic uh, elements of this entire uh, proposal is that you know we know that many conservation practices, you know whether it's reduced tillage or cover crops are incredibly reliant on access to pesticides. I mean, do you think, I mean, if, if farmers all of a sudden are having a hard time being able to access tools to treat weeds or particularly herbicide resistant weeds in their fields and, and, and EPA is telling them, well, we're gonna further restrict your access to these tools, you need to manage that, those risks. Do you think that farmers aren't gonna you know, resort to greater tillage to terminate those weeds? Um, and you're going to lose a lot of potential benefits that are not only going to protect the species that EPA is intending to protect, but, you know, you're going to have increased risks of like, soil erosion, of, you know, release of, um, you know, of nutrients, the watershed risks. You're going to be, real, you know, to your point, increasing passes across the field, which is using more, more tractor fuel. You know, there's a lot of downsides to that. And e EPA is, through these proposals, disincentivizing the very practices that they're trying to encourage. Cover crops is another great example. You know, there was a survey done just a couple of years ago of, um, that found that nearly 80% of farmers nationwide use herbicides to terminate their cover crops out of planting because they're so reliable and effective. And yet EPA is going to make it harder for those same farmers to access the, the, um, you know, the, the tools that they need to make cover crops a, a scalable and viable practice. And you're gonna ultimately see EPA disin disincentivizing and discouraging the use of those practices that they're they're saying are important for protecting the environment. 
So what's the process now? You had mentioned that the comment period recently closed and you certainly did provide comment and input. What's What happens now and how does this process move forward? Well, yeah, it's going to be an all-hands-on-back effort at this point to try to reaffirm to EPA. The good news is is they, they still have time. They don't have to go down this road. Um, there, there are options available to them to, we think, meet their compliance obligations and at the same time not harm agriculture. Um, you know, we think many elements of what has been proposed is probably significant misunderstandings of agriculture and how farming works. You know, USDA, thankfully, USDA shares many of our same concerns, and they've also, as a co-regulator, have con- conveyed those concerns to EPA. And I think it's going to take all of us here in the weeks to come to follow up with EPA and say, look, you know, here are all the ways that you're, you know, you're really going to be hurting farmers if you go through with this. Um, EPA has said that um, that they're planning on finalizing something um, by May of next year. So we've got a little bit of time to educate them. But what we're strongly encouraging folks right now is, is if they're part of a trade association, you know, ask your trade association folks what they're doing to weigh in with EPA on this. Um, you know, uh, we, we think that it's going to take uh, a lot of folks telling them that there are better better solutions out there and that we're, we're happy to work with them. No one wants to harm the environment. You know, they want to be, you know, farmers want to be good stewards. We know that. And they're doing a lot of things to already do that. But it's going to take EPA recognizing a lot of those activities that are already going on that are you know, providing good stewardship and are protecting species um, for the agency to truly get this right. As you said, Kyle, a very complex, large issue. And, and if folks want to go someplace to learn a little more for themselves about it, uh, uh, where's a place that they can go to uh, get some information? ASA, we have posted on our website a lot of the different comments that um, that we and others, and again, we've signed on to some coalition, uh, uh, helped to lead some coalition efforts that a lot of groups across the country have signed on to, and they're pretty detailed explanations of what this proposal is. Um, you know, many, again, increasingly, I think a lot of associations across the country, you know, we, we work closely with our friends at Farm Bureau and our friends at Corn and Wheat and uh you know, a lot of the specialty crop groups, and I feel like a lot of those staff at those associations are becoming increasingly familiar with these proposals. The other thing, too, I would tell folks is feel free, like reach out to their 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 local their local USDA offices or their local even their local EPA, their regional EPA offices and ask about this and then say, can you can you tell me more about this just to get educated and get up to speed on this? Um, there's nothing no harm with getting educated and asking questions. And I think that that gives, you know, even helps folks to build those relationships with those, with those regulators that can hopefully help us move the needle on this at the end of the day. Kyle, is there anything else that uh, you really you want people to know about this issue that uh, we haven't touched on? Yeah, the only other thing I would say is, uh, you know, encourage folks to not, you know, don't, don't think that this is a one and done. Um, you know, we mentioned that there are other proposals that are going to be coming down the pipeline here in, in the months to come on fungicides and on insecticides and at the end of the day epa you know sorry and um, at the end of the day endangered species act restrictions on pesticides are, are are going to potentially impact every agricultural pesticide user in the country um from coast to coast so strongly encourage folks if you haven't had the chance to get educated or weigh in on herbicides don't fret there are going to be more opportunities to come but we need folks to get educated on this, understand what these proposals are, why the agencies are doing this, and what impacts this might have on uh, on their operations. And then weigh in both with their associations and with federal regulators at the end of the day 
when those opportunities arise, because that's ultimately what this is going to take. It's going to take everybody weighing in, you know, educating the agencies and expressing the concerns, uh, you know, as to what impacts that this is going to have on farmers. Thanks for joining us for this Field Talk podcast. Previous podcasts are available at linderfarmnetwork.com and through Apple and Spotify. As always, be sure to tune in to your local LFN affiliate for the latest in farm news and market information.